0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, a special edition of the podcast and we've been looking back at what happened exactly 12 months ago. This is Times Radio. I'm Matt Chorley and this is the story of the past 12 months starting with what happened a year ago today.
2: And therefore I give notice that Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party.
3: No incoming leader has ever faced such a daunting set of circumstances, it said. Never mind the backstop, the buck stops here. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. I'd rather be dead in a ditch. Let's get Brexit done. I don't want an election You don't want an election. Let's get Brexit done. You just whack it in the microwave, gas mark four, it's there, it's ready, it is ready to go. Let's get Brexit done. A people's government will set out from constituencies that have never returned a conservative MP for 100 years. We're working up a plan so that people can bung a bob for a bing bing, bing bong. And when there is a risk that new diseases such as coronavirus trigger a panic. I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody. Many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. Alas, I still have uh, one of the uh, symptoms. If this virus were a physical assailant, an unexpected and invisible mugger, which I can tell you from personal experience it is, then this is the moment when we have begun together to wrestle it to the floor. The the leader of the opposition has more flip-flops than Bournemouth Beach.
1: Wow, quite the year. Time flies when you're having whatever is the opposite of fun. So, uh, on a sunny day in July last year, a year ago tomorrow, Boris Johnson stood outside number 10 and finally fulfilled his dream of becoming Prime Minister.
3: I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted
1: So what we're going to do now on Times Radio is take his own words, his key promises from that speech and ask experts how he's gone about delivering on them. Of course, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, it was all about Brexit.
3: The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. The people who bet against Britain are going to lose their shirts because we're going to restore trust in our democracy. And we're going to fulfil the repeated promises of Parliament to the people and come out of the EU on October the 31st, no ifs or buts. I am convinced we can do a deal without checks at the Irish border because we refuse under any circumstances to have such checks and yet without that anti-democratic backstop.
1: We're here to give his take on those Brexit promises is Anand Menon, director of the UK in a changing Europe.
4: So when it comes to the first and most obvious Brexit pledge, which was that we are coming out of the EU 31st of October, uh, clearly the no ifs and buts were slightly misguided because we didn't. the second part of that quote is as interesting, I think, because it was tied up to a desire to restore trust in our democracy. And one of the things that happened at the end of last year was that Parliament was increasingly portrayed as an obstacle to democracy, which is something that was both slightly unexpected, I think, but also has profound consequences for the working of our system. And finally, when it comes to the deal that was done, because, of course, the Prime Minister did manage to sign a deal, he just managed to get it through, in, through Parliament, the point about the deal is he directly contradicted what he said in that opening speech. He was convinced at the time, he said, that a deal could be done without checks at the Irish border because, and I quote, we refuse any, under any circumstances to have such checks. There will, however, be checks. So that is another promise, I'm afraid, he's failed to meet. There will be checks, certainly, on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And when they come in, I think that will have an impact on opinion about the deal in Northern Ireland, certainly.
1: So, of course, we did finally leave the EU, just not until the end of January. There were other big promises in Boris Johnson's speech, of course, starting with law and order. My job is to make your streets safer. and we're going to come in
3: with another 20,000 police on the streets and we start recruiting forthwith.
1: So, how has that recruitment process gone? This is the Times Crime and Security editor, Fiona Hamilton.
2: So a central plank of Boris Johnson's election campaign was a pledge to increase the number of police officers by 20,000 over the next three years. Effectively, what that does, if it is successful, is reverses the decline in police officer numbers over the past 10 years, um, which was of course, overseen by first the coalition government and then the conservative government during austerity. Um, Between March 2010 and March 2019, police officer numbers fell to around 123,000, which is actually near the record lows of the early 1980s. The government wants to boost that to about 145,000, and it's pledged the funding to do so. So far, there was a 6,000 officer target for the first year in May The Home Office announced that it had met 3,000 police officers and it was fairly confident that it's going to meet that target of 6,000 in the first year. However, the Policing Minister Kit Malthouse has acknowledged that that the coronavirus pandemic could have a negative impact on the pledge. 84 million pounds that was ring fenced for use in recruiting police officers in the first year has already been diverted to other areas because of the pandemic. They are saying they are going to push on and try and reach the 20,000, but there are obstacles that the pandemic um, throws up in terms of recruitment and being able to meet that pledge. There are other issues as well. 20,000 police officers, well and good, but if you want to boost forces to the original numbers, you actually need to recruit 53,000 because attrition rates are so high. I saw an analysis of the uplift programme that said that one in three officers are uh, expected by 2023 to have served for less than 3 years because they're doing such a massive recruitment campaign but this does raise issues of brain drain and finally there's an issue about recruitment of black and ethnic minority people which the police services always struggle with currently the college of policing which is the standards body estimates around 5% of the overall workforce are BAME In order for Mr Johnson's policies to really be seen as a success, that representation will need to be dramatically increased.
1: That was uh, Fiona Hamilton there uh, talking us through the the police recruitment. She also uh, touched on the impact of the pandemic on on those plans. Well, right from day one, even before coronavirus hit, there were also big promises for the health service too. My job is to make sure you don't have to wait three weeks
3: to see your GP. And we start work this week with 20 new hospital upgrades and ensuring that the money for the NHS really does get to the front line. My job is to protect you or your parents or grandparents from the fear of having to sell your home to pay for the costs of care. And so I am announcing now on the steps of Downing Street that we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all, with a clear plan we have prepared
1: to give every older person the dignity and security they deserve. So where is that clear plan? Well, this is Ben Zarenko from the independent economic think tank, the Institute for Fiscal Studies.
5: To take each of those in turn, if we look first at the GP waiting times promise, we haven't had a new waiting times target from Boris Johnson, but they have promised to have an extra 50 million GP appointments, but the jury's still out on whether they will achieve that. The latest data we have from January of this year actually suggests that, if anything, waiting times for GP appointments are getting longer, not shorter, so we'll have to keep a close eye on that in the years to come. On the 20 new hospital upgrades, shortly after that speech, uh, Mr Johnson did allocate $850 over five years for those 20 upgrades and gave details. So he did achieve that, but it's worth mentioning that 850 million over five years isn't a great deal of money. Money for the NHS more generally, he inherited a five year funding plan from Theresa May, which involved an extra 34 billion in cash terms for the NHS, or just over 20 billion after you adjust for inflation. To put that in some context, that equates to 3.4% real increases per year. That compares to 1.3% since 2010, 6% under Blair and Brown, and 3.6% over the lifetime of the NHS. So more generous than we've become accustomed to recently, less generous than new labour, and slightly less generous than the historical average. Then, relatedly, he's promised, actually not in this particular speech, but he's promised 40 new hospitals. They've provided money for six, and they've planned that they're going to build the remaining 34 after 2025, but we we'll are waiting details on that. And the big one here is his promise to fix social care, which I think I'm very happy to say he has not done I feel very comfortable saying that he's failed on that promise entirely. If he had a clear plan for how to fix social care in the streets of Downing Street, he kept it close to his chest and it remains very much in need of fixing. They've provided some extra funding here and there, something of a sticking plaster, but the broader system of social care funding remains very much in need of reform and that's something that we'll have to hold the government to account on in the years to come. Not on the steps
1: of Downing Street, Boris Johnson also made much of his commitment to schools. My job is to make sure your kids get a superb education wherever they are in the country, and that's why we have already announced that we're going to level up per-pupil funding in primary and secondary schools. Well, one year on, Rosemary Bennett, the Times education editor, provides her report card.
6: For
7: historic reasons... Children in different parts of England received very different amounts of per head funding with a bias towards large cities. So, Boris Johnson's central pledge a year ago was to level up primary school and secondary school funding to a minimum level for all kids. Last August, we got a very big announcement of £7.1 billion, a massive increase in the school's budget, uh, which will be complete by the 2022 23 school year. That has allowed them to fulfil this pledge to level up school funding this year, and that means that uh, primary schools are getting roughly £4,000 per head per pupil, and secondary schools £5,000. Now, this was a very, very large amount of money for schools, but the government was not really able to make very much political capital from it for two reasons. First of all, despite the fact that it was a very large amount of money, the baby boom from the early years of the millennium meant the school age population as that bulge of kids moved through. Uh, that was coming into uh, primary schools and then secondary schools. The money had to be stretched around more kids, basically. Secondly, funding school funding is still below uh, what schools were getting in 2009, 2010. That's of last year of Labour before austerity kicked in. So all the Tories really did was replace funding that was lost under previous Conservative governments. So there was a lot of hoopla about the levelling up. Uh, and these huge sums of money that were going into schools. But there was never really an awful lot of credit for the uh, for, for Boris Johnson because a Conservative government took it out of the school's budget in the first place. So that kind of rather soured the announcement when it came last summer and everything now is really viewed through that kind of prism. Uh, so this week, for example, we have teachers getting among the biggest pay rises, 3.1%. But that that has to come out of this this increase uh, so something will now have to be cut Uh, and everything is now being really viewed in 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 the way of um, well you you gave it that you're only making it up you've got a new announcement we've got to take it out of funds that have already been announced so uh, again it's a slightly uh, uh, there's a lot of irritation really between schools and the government on this government thinking they're not getting the credit for it and schools thinking that they're they're hard done by Then levelling up is, of course, part of a bigger agenda, which is the levelling up of educational attainment, really, between rich and poor kids. And we've seen that really come to the fore in the pandemic. So schools were shut down and the government was warned very clearly it is poor kids that will suffer most. So we had then a very toxic battle between the unions and the government. Uh, Boris Johnson, very clear, he wanted schools back on June the 1st and, if possible, all of primary schools back by June the 30th. Uh, that, that didn't happen uh, with, with some schools opening, uh, lots of unions telling the teachers just don't go back. Then we had a £1 billion payment for catch up. Again, that's now been criticised as everybody's getting a little bit. So what are you actually going to do for the very poorest, disadvantaged kids who will have lost out most?
1: Me Bennett, now. There are, of course, no prime minister can do it all themselves. And while Boris Johnson insisted he was in charge, he also set about overhauling the team in number 10. And that is the work that begins immediately behind that black door. And
3: though I am today building a great team of men and women, I will take personal responsibility for the change I want to see. Never mind the backstop, the buck stops here.
1: There have, though, been a lot of changes in personnel in the last 12 months, as Katie Balls, deputy political editor of The Spectator, now explains.
8: So I think we saw Boris Johnson bring in some quite decisive appointments, the most obvious one being Dominic Cummings, and it took a lot of Tory MPs by surprise, actually. Um, because it wasn't mentioned in the Tory leadership at all. And it's such a dominant presence, I think, that had it been, a few of his supporters might have been a little bit more sceptical about backing Boris Johnson. Dominic Cummings was a person who I think is the most influential in Downing Street in terms of the daily running. Um, but you also have the other Vote lead team that were brought in that some before Dominic Cummings arrived, so Lee Kaye and the Director of Communications. And I think that in previous years, Director of Comms, hasn't always been a role where you're in the room on everything, but in this case, it is very instrumental, someone who's been very close to Boris Johnson for some time. And I think you can see that in lots of the appointments. So on Brexit, bringing in David Frost, someone who had worked with Boris Johnson already um, during his time as Foreign Secretary, who's often a a strong current of loyalty. And yes, that works with the Vote Leave Block, where I think loyalty is seen as the most important thing, but also just across these appointments. And then we get to Mark Sedwell, who I think there was lots of scepticism at the beginning of whether or not he would actually even stay in that position for long when Boris Johnson moved in. He was Theresa May's hire. But initially, I think that he repackaged himself and suggested he'd be useful to the new regime that clearly like, didn't last. And ultimately, most of the sceptical of him one out. He's gone. Dominic Cummings is still there.
1: Well, five months before the general election, which saw the Tories take seats held by Labour for generations, it was clear that the new PM already had his sights set on them.
3: And I'll tell you something else about my job. It is to be Prime Minister of the whole United Kingdom. And that means uniting our country, answering at last the plea of the forgotten people and the left-behind towns by physically and literally renewing the ties that bind us together.
1: Well, how do those forgotten people feel about Boris Johnson now? This is the pollster Deborah Mattinson, founder of Britain Thinks.
9: In the work that I've been doing in the Red Wall seats to understand why those lifelong Labour voters voted Tory, uh, I think it's quite straightforward, actually. Boris Johnson gave them a licence to vote Tory at a time when they were most disillusioned with with Labour. And one person said to me, what he's done is he's de-snobbified the Tory party. Uh, he didn't seem like a typical Tory, he had a really clear message, he was very forthright, he shared a lot of their views, people said things like he's his own man, you can tell he likes people, he tells it like it is, he sent a clear message to those people in the red wall that their views that had been neglected for a long time really mattered to him, in particular their sense of patriotism and that was something that they, they held on to very strongly and they loved about him. So where are we now? What I've done is to go back and ask them how they feel now, uh, you know, kind of almost a year on and and several months on from the election and a lot of water under the bridge. What I would say is that while a lot of people are still giving him the benefit of the doubt, frankly, there is palpable disappointment. Initially, they felt that his handling of COVID was good, that he united the country. And of course, they felt empathy with his plight when he was ill. But the peak of his personal ratings, which was then, as he as he knows and constantly refers to, has now dropped back. What he's done is he's lost that clarity of message. One person said, we voted for bold and now we've ended up with waffle. And I think that people are now worried that he's reverting to form, by which they mean becoming more like a normal Tory. So they thought he understood them. But does he really? One person, Neil, who's a joiner from Accrington, said to me, He's behaving like the upper class Etonian educated man that he is. He makes the rules. He breaks the rules. And that was referring, for example, to to Dominic Cummings. So there's just this sense of disappointment in a way now the jury is out. Um, Will he actually continue to be the person who de-snobbified the Tories or is he going to just revert to form the atypical Tory and basically lose their votes in doing so?
1: Deborah Mattinson, the pollster there. This is Matt surely on Times Radio, looking back at Boris Johnson's first speech in Downing Street and comparing to what followed. Now, as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, keeping the United Kingdom, well, united, is a key part of the job. Because it is time we unleashed the productive power, not just of London
3: and the South East, but of every corner of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. The awesome foursome that are incarnated in that red, white and blue flag, who together are so much more than the sum of their parts.
1: So, as Boris Johnson heads to Scotland today, what state is the union, the awesome foursome, in now? Alex Massey a a Time, Co- Times columnist and The Spectator's Scotland editor. He wonders if that promise has been kept.
10: A year later, like so many other Boris Johnson promises, this one begins to look a little threadbare. Support for Scottish independence has never been this high this consistently in the opinion polls. Two recent surveys suggest that if a referendum on independence were to be held uh, today or tomorrow or next week or next month, uh, support for independence would run at 54, 55 percent. And the United Kingdom, uh, as we know it, would no longer uh, exist. It would be an ex-United Kingdom, as Boris Johnson himself might put it. Uh, Some of this is attributable to forces beyond Boris Johnson's control. The handling of the coronavirus has failed to impress citizens north of the border. Equally, uh, the Prime Minister's own character, his own performance, his own approval ratings, or rather the lack of them, uh, uh, seriously imperil both his cause and that of unionism north of the border. Uh, Boris Johnson's approval ratings in Scotland are almost 100 points lower than Nicola Sturgeon's. A a discrepancy between their two political fortunes, crystallised by the viewing uh, of their handling of COVID-19, uh, that il- illustrates the depths of the difficulties in which the Prime Minister finds himself in Scotland these days. Um, and lurking behind all of that, there is the ever-present ever, uh, ever present shadow of Brexit, a third factor which complicates uh, Boris Johnson's claims to one-union, one-nation uh, conservatism. Uh, Scotland, like Northern Ireland, rejected Brexit, even as England and Wales voted for it. Forging a United Kingdom out of those circumstances in the years ahead will prove extremely difficult.
1: Alex Massey there discussing the union and talking about Brexit. Well, once uh, he got Brexit done, Britain leaving at the end of January, attention quickly turned to Britain's trading relationships. And yes, let's start now on those free trade
3: deals. Because it is free trade that has done more than anything else to lift billions out of poverty. All this and more we can do now and only now at this extraordinary moment in our history. And after three years of unfounded self-doubt, it is time to change the record, to recover our natural and historic role as an enterprising, outward-looking and truly global Britain, generous in temper and engaged with the world.
1: Well, here is Anand Menon from the UK in a changing Europe again.
4: Of course, trade deals were crucial in the post-Brexit vision of Boris Johnson and the other Brexiters. Uh, What was noticeable about this speech was the way he talked about free trade, the way it lifts people out of poverty and the like, and the way that he was convinced and determined that Britain should go out and sign deals. Now, yes, we're negotiating with a number of partners. We've signed uh, rollover deals to keep our terms with the EU going with a number of other partners. However... I think it's worth saying that when it comes to the really big ones, and here what we're talking about is the U.S., where it's recently been reported a deal won't be done in time for the presidential election in November, or China, where we've got a host of other issues before we even start talking about trade at the moment, let's face it, and, of course, the EU itself. The mood at the moment is there are no trade deals that are obviously going to be signed. And in the case of the EU, even if a deal is signed, it's not going to be a very ambitious and far-reaching one, partly because of time and partly too because the government has set these red lines around EU regulations and then ceasing to to apply in the United Kingdom that would make it very hard to get anything very ambitious through.
1: Now, after watching first from the Cabinet table and then obviously from the back benches, Boris Johnson had seen the struggles that Theresa May had in trying to deliver the 2016 Brexit referendum result so having set out his plan and his priorities he reached as so often for optimism as the thing that would see him through. No one
3: in the last few centuries has succeeded in betting against the pluck and nerve and ambition of this country. They will not succeed today. We in this government will work flat out to give this country the leadership it deserves. And that work begins
1: now. So that's us taking a look back at Boris Johnson's words in Downing Street when he first became Prime Minister. Uh, Up next, we will examine his place in history and focus more on coronavirus, which obviously he had no idea was going to turn up on his watch uh, when he first gave that speech. I'll be joined by historian Sir Anthony Selton, who's written books about the last five occupants of Number 10. Boris Johnson's biographer, Sonia Pennell, plus Guito Harry, the Prime Minister's friend and former aide. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this.
8: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: We were looking back at Boris Johnson's early promises on the steps of number 10 when he became Prime Minister a year ago. But of course, as they say, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry and coronavirus has dominated the past six months of his premiership. What has that revealed about the man himself, his style of leadership and his future prospects? Here to pick through what he's achieved and how he's managed it and what might come next are Sir Anthony Seldon, academic and biographer of the past five prime ministers. Morning, Anthony. Good morning. Uh, Geeta Harry, friend and former advisor to Boris Johnson. Morning, Geeta. Good morning. And uh, Sonia Pennell, author of Just Boris, A Tale of Blonde Ambition, an early biography of the man who's now Prime Minister. Morning, Sonia. Good morning. So, uh, I suppose to some extent, he thought he'd be the Brexit Prime Minister. Anthony, he's he's going to be remembered as the coronavirus Prime Minister, isn't he?
6: Well,
12: he'll also be remembered as the person who won a general election that seemed to be eluding the party, which uh, gave the Conservatives the first um, proper majority for nearly 30 years. And he'll be remembered as the person who took the country out of the EU um, and many other things as well. So it depends if there's a second wave and it depends uh, whether we're now running out and and moving into post lockdown.
1: Uh, When he first became prime minister, the Queen told him, I don't know why anyone would want to do the job. Uh, Guto, why does why why is Boris Johnson always wanted to be prime minister?
13: Well, anyone who goes into politics, you know, if they're honest, wants to have as much power uh, to practice to exercise uh, according to the principles they hold uh, as is possible. He was just a bit more obvious about wanting to get to the top job so that he could really do that. I don't think that's shocking any more than a footballer <laughs> wanting to play for. Uh, his country or her country is these days. You know why want? Why would anyone want to stay in the weeds? But what I think Boris achieved when he went into Number Ten was defying his critics, who always underestimated him, thought he was lazy, thought he was a lightweight, thought he had no sense of discipline or purpose. And whether you agree with a sense of direction or not, and I'm you know being more fears in my criticism of certain aspects of uh, policy over the years and and certain things Boris has said. But whether you agree or not, the sense of direction, the sense of momentum, the sense of purpose over the last year has been formidable. And uh, it took the coronavirus, you know, a global pandemic that came from nowhere Uh, blindsiding virtually every leader in the world to hit them uh, briefly off course. So I think it's, you know, it's worth sitting back a little bit to sort of bear in mind uh, the phenomenal year that he has had personally and the huge year that the government have had other than just handling the crisis.
1: Do you think, you're you're correct, that he he achieved what his predecessor didn't in terms of negotiating a deal, taking Britain out of the EU and then winning that extraordinary majority in the election. But do you think it took a bit too long to bring that same sense of purpose to reacting to the the outbreak of coronavirus in January and February?
13: Yeah, I think there were specific issues with the uh, coronavirus crisis. One is that, you know, it it, it could have easily been... uh, mistaken at the start, uh, like another sort of a flu that, you know, hit other parts of the world and wasn't as relevant to us. I think there were huge other issues, not least Brexit looming large. I think, you know, everyone involved, particularly the prime minister, had had a massive personal year. If you just think of of the energy that it takes to sort of win a leadership election, form a government, bash through the summer, do a deal, run a general election, most people would be on their knees at that point. But more fundamentally, in the end, I think Boris Johnson's core instincts are extremely deep and powerful. And every bone in his body would, would make him reluctant to lock down the country, tell people what they can and can't do, shut down shops, shut down businesses, prevent people from going to work. And quite rightly, most of us don't want to live in a society where that kind of thing comes naturally to a leader. And yes, Will we pay a price, uh, sadly, in lives for a slight delay? There we might. I don't want to preempt that 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 sort of inquiry in the end. But I think it's understandable in the end that people weighing up lives as well as livelihoods, the sort of turning Britain into a sort of autocratic state versus trying to sort of invite people to think for themselves. Uh, Sonia,
1: it's been a, almost a decade since you wrote your uh, biography of Boris Johnson. How is he? Different to the the man you first sort of investigated, how, how do you think coronavirus has changed him?
6: Um, actually, I don't think he's different at all. I mean, none of what I've seen over the last year or so has really surprised me. Though, of course, I couldn't possibly have seen the coronavirus um, pandemic coming. But I think. That has um, exposed a lot about Boris Johnson. I hear what Gita was saying. Of course, no one wants to make um, face masks mandatory. No one wants to close down shops or, or theatres or cinemas or anything else. But there is sometimes, very, very rarely, thank goodness, where those things are necessary to protect lives and, and ultimately also livelihoods. Because while people don't feel safe, they're not prepared to get back on the train and go back into the office or go to the shop and buy things or restaurants or theatres whatever so it isn't as if it's one thing or the other to make people feel safe actually helps the economy and I speak as someone who lost touch of Covid my mother was in a care home where they were simply not protected where they were sending people out of hospital back into the care home without testing them and as a result every single person on my mother's floor in her care home, every single person died, every single one. Now, I don't think that is an acceptable price. I really do not. And when I think back, and I thought at the time when Boris Johnson talked about going in to a hospital when we knew what was coming our way we could see it in italy we knew it was going to hit us very soon and boasted about shaking people's hands everybody's hands i shuddered then and when i think back of it back at it now i am absolutely devastated by the carelessness the recklessness with which he treated us all by behaving in that way because of course very much part of what the Prime Minister's responsibility is, is to look after his or her people and to do them no harm and to show leadership, moral and otherwise. And I'm afraid that has been lacking and we're paying the price in lives lost and in livelihoods lost. Our our economy is taking much longer to, to bounce back. And I fear that, you know, for the generation, my kids' generation, just about to go into the workplace, this is a very, very frightening time and um, I think you know you just had a, an item about people hoping to retire who can't do that either I think it's hitting us really hard and of course we're on our own we've got n- no trade trade deals with with any of the big um, blocks at the moment so how we're going to ever get out of this mess I simply don't know.
1: Oh I'm really sorry Sonia I didn't know that about your your mother it was a terrible terrible time Anthony Seldon, there were sadly that story's repeated, isn't it? Tens of thousands of times across the country. Uh, Boris Johnson sort of famously often compares himself to to Winston Churchill. You know, this is his darkest hour, if you like. Um, is it possible for him to overcome that? Um, the, the huge death toll on his watch.
12: Yes, of course it is. Uh, he does need to, as uh, so I was writing in red box earlier this week he does need to have an inquiry quickly not one of the uh chilcott inquiries into iraq that lasted about um 47 years he needs to get it (laughs) over and done with by the time a second wave strikes this winter if indeed it does strike and yeah he needs to be open and take a a hit And, and he clearly along with Heads of government and state worldwide didn 't judge everything correctly um and I think the judgment on him will be much more how he copes from now on uh than than on what he did, but it will be partly his response if he tries to cover things up uh as he has a, a tendency to want to do, then I think that will come back so candor. Uh, openness getting this uh, second report in, responding a lot better next time round will ensure and then you yeah, what else I mean look uh he 's got ten massive things uh, coming down the track to him uh, Scotland today is just one of him, one of them Cameron avoided and uh, quite narrowly losing Scotland in two thousand and fourteen is Boris Johnson going to be the lord north who who lost uh, the the United States, Uh, will he lose Scotland? What's going to happen then to Northern Ireland? What's going to happen on Brexit? You know, why is the country doing Brexit? Brexit was supposed to be about less red tape, less regulation, the chances are it's going to be more. It was about growth, not uh, reduction. Uh, So how is he going to think that through? And he's got a lot of other things which we can look at if you want to. If he plays those correctly, then he will indeed be an extraordinary domestic prime minister. So he's already, from his own record, it would have been a lot better, dare I say it, um, this would be the history of verdict, um, had he indeed succumbed to COVID, he would have left at an extraordinary high point. No prime minister domestically in peacetime has done as much as Boris Johnson did in his first year. Uh, The question is, how can he uh, slay these uh, ten dragons which are uh, <laughs> marching down Whitehall and, and they're at the gates by the policemen in to Downing Street. What will he do? Less uh, Churchill, we need more St George.
1: Uh, Gita Howie, you've obviously worked closely with Boris Johnson in the past. Do you think he's enjoying it? Is it, is it what he thought being Prime Minister would be?
13: Does he enjoy being the center of attention and at the heart of things that matter and having the power and influence to do something about things that he cares about? Absolutely. Does that mean he trivializes it? Not at all. I still remember him. You know in his first term as mayor of London, waking up furious um, when he heard that another young person had been stabbed in in london and, and 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 furious that you know one of the richest cities in the world was unable to stop you know teenagers in that city from slaughtering each other and i 've no doubt that he feels the same sense of rage at the fact that this pandemic has caused such destruction, the idea of a sort of out of touch. Uh, old conservative, lacking in empathy, not knowing what lives, the lives of ordinary people are like, is clearly one that the the general public decided was not credible, even though that's what they were fed largely ahead of the last general election. They could see somebody who was in touch with them. It doesn't mean he's right on everything. A lot of things, and I think care homes will be, you know, rightly a, a very, very... Oh, I think we've just have
1: gone badly wrong. Sorry, Gita, we just very slightly lost. Uh, I think the last couple of words from uh, what you were saying there. Uh, one question that sort of sprung to mind is: is it, this is obviously also at the anniversary of the return of Dominic Cummings, uh, an extraordinary uh, influence on the government. We're here this morning that he's marching around seventy, uh, number seventy on Whitehall with a with a layout as he plans the the, over, the latest overhaul of the power structures in Whitehall. Um, is, is he as powerful as we're led to believe, Guito? Is he really the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister in all but name? Uh,
13: anyone who wants to know my reviews, Dominic Cummings, I'd direct them to Google my name, his, and GQ, and they'll find that I spoke uh, very openly about that. But what I have to well, say... Well, just for the benefit of that, listeners,
1: and if maybe they're not near well, a computer,
13: what, what's your view on Dominic Cummings? Is he a good uh, thing in some, government? Some Some things are worth waiting for. What I would say is that even for those of us who are uncomfortable with his style and with what seems to be a you know, brutally offensive sort of approach towards people who deserve respect, whether it's because they're junior staffers who give their lives to the party or elder statesmen who've been treated with contempt. It's not something that I would have ever done when I was acting in in, in Boris's name with Boris's authority. But if you look at the sense of purpose and direction and momentum and focus that this government has had, despite the sort of... Uh, hurricanes that it has uh, been confronted with, then even someone like me, who's not a friend and is indeed quite a fierce critic, have <laughs> to acknowledge that Dominic Cummings has got something to do with keeping things on track.
1: Well, if I've just looked up your piece, you wrote in February for GQ. You said uh, Dominic Cummings will be gone by the summer. Do you stand by that? Do you think something might happen? Or, or it, much like Brexit, is his, is his departure going to be delayed and delayed?
13: Actually, that, not that I want to, you know, wriggle out of this, but that was a headline (laughs) that was written by someone else. I predicted, (laughs) I I said at the end, we know how this story ends. Um, He was nearly gone by summer. And in fact, most people in the party probably think that he should have been gone uh, by the summer and that uh, Boris Johnson, unfortunately, has hemorrhaged a a huge amount of uh, personal and political authority standing by him. Um, But I have to acknowledge in saying that, that the reasons for doing so is not necessarily because, you know, there's some sort of uh, personal dependency or anything, but that Dominic Cummings clearly brings a sense of focus and uh, and momentum and direction to a government. Well, one thing that I just wanted to
1: sort of touch on is there has been sort of speculation about, you know, will he even fight the next election? Well, I think it's worth pointing out, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, the Tories were on 25% in the polls, four points ahead of Labour. Today, they're on about 46%, Ten points ahead of Labour, even allowing for Keir Starmer improving Labour's uh, performance. There's a new YouGov poll out today of Conservative Party members. Uh, 85% think he's doing uh, well in the job. And the vast majority think that he will... uh, um, lead the party into the next election, but that, you, but there's also talk that the you know the majority of 80s not as strong as we think it might be. Uh, there's some unrest on the Tory backbenches. Uh, lots of talk about Rishi Sunak. Uh, according to this YouGov poll, he would win on a, by a landslide as the person to replace Boris Johnson. Just finally, I want to ask you all: Do you think? Uh, what do you think? Sort of the next four years might hold, and do you think Boris Johnson will will lead the Toys into the next election? I'll start with you, Sonia now.
6: Oh, well, I think it all depends on what happens over the next um, six to twelve months. I mean, if we don't get trade deals with the US and, and the EU, um, our economy completely crashes, which would be the result of those failures. Um, it, you know, and I'm talking about good trade deals. Obviously, any old deal is is you know perhaps easy to get, but a good trade deal is very very difficult to get. If our economy Crashes. If hundreds, of, if not millions, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people lose their jobs, I think you'll see a very, very different and very quick turnaround in, in those figures. And I don't think Boris Johnson could possibly survive that. And as I said earlier, I cannot see at the moment how we're going to evolve everything that catastrophe and it terrifies me and it terrifies me for my kids and, and everybody else's kids too I, I think we're on a knife edge here and uh, it's the calm before the storm the storm you talked about hurricanes earlier if we get a second wave on top of a an economic collapse my goodness it will be like nothing any of us have ever seen before
1: so anthony selden will boris johnson lead the tory party to the next election do you think
6: absolutely
12: unknowable Completely and utterly unknowable. I mean, you can ask the question, but I don't think the answer can (laughs) be anything other than maybe because there are so many. Yeah, there are always uncertainties. Look, in any uh, prime minister, but I can't think of any of the 54 other prime ministers who have had so much uncertainty. It's so hubristic around. Dominic Cummings, uh, it, it's so that, the, that Europe, the state of the economy, the worst economic crisis in 300 years, the worst health crisis in 100 years, the, the biggest trauma for the nation in, in its standing coming out of the EU for you know 100 years again. I mean, you know, it could be magnificent, uh, it could be awful, but it will not be dull.
1: Well, you're yeah, totally right about that. You know, nobody could have expected to be here where we were uh, 12 months ago. Just finally, Gita Howie, I've had a quick scan through your article. This is what you said about Dominic Cummings: We're left with a powerful, unelected official cultivating a high profile, uh, disagreeing with the prime minister, undermining the cabinet, picking on special advisers, hiring weirdos who can't survive a week in public and uh, public life, and providing us all with a detailed running commentary of how wonderful this is all meant to be. Fantastic. So, on that basis, I suppose I should ask: Will Boris Johnson lead the Tory Party into the next election, and will Dominic Cummings still <laughs> be? Either.
13: Um I think we all know how it ends with Dominic Cummings, but as for <laughs> Boris Johnson, again, you know, he's been underestimated time and time and time again by people who who try and put him in a box, if you can find me somebody who can walk into a fish and chip shop in somewhere like Bridgend in South Wales or Doncaster and be greeted by somebody behind there who wouldn't even greet a superior by their first name, greeted warmly as Boris, offered free chips on the house, though he obviously wouldn't take them without declaring them afterwards, and actually look them (laughs) in the eye and say that he wakes up every morning genuinely wanting what is best for Britain, genuinely wanting their lives and that the lives that they give their kids and all that to be better, um, then I think that's, what, that's the vibe he gives off. He gives off an energy and a commitment and an irrepressible optimism that it's very, very hard to generate elsewhere, no matter how clever and able and sort of smooth you are. Quite rightly, Keir Starmer will put his feet to the fire. Quite rightly, he will dissect the things that are wrong. Quite rightly, we will hopefully have better government because we have a far better opposition than we've had for years. But you still have to deal with a phenomenon, a sort of once-in-a-lifetime character that cuts through all the general rules of politics, breaks the rules, pushes the boundaries and all that, but somehow connects with people in a way that Labour politicians struggle to and Conservative politicians have hardly ever managed in, in, in all of history.
1: Well, Gita Harry, friend and former advisor to Boris Johnson, thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Also, Sir Anthony Salton, the academic and biographer, and Sonia Pennell, who uh, wrote the the, uh, biography of Boris Johnson almost a decade ago and thinks he hasn't changed one bit. Up next, we speak to the Times sketch writer, Quentin Letts. Fridays on Times Radio
7: Join me, Jenny Kleeman, with Luke Jones for Breakfast on Times Radio every Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 6am
3: Times Radio Breakfast A bold new voice in the morning With all the news, conversation and debate you could possibly wish for Breakfast with Jenny Kleeman and Luke Jones Tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio
9: Across the UK, on DAB, online, and on your smart speaker, Matt Chorley, on Times Radio.
1: So we've done the detailed policy analysis. We've spoken to friend and uh, foe and uh, the historians about Boris Johnson's place. But let's now find out what it's like watching Boris Johnson up close and try to sketch him for the Times. I'm joined now by Quentin Lates, uh, the Times sketch writer. Morning, Quentin. Uh, Mr Charlie there you are <laughs> nice to have you uh, nice to have you on the show now uh, one of the things I want to ask you is because uh, I know in the past when I've uh, been asked to fill in uh, doing the sketch for the times it's sometimes it's harder if the person you're sketching is telling jokes are being funny because there's a risk you just end up just writing down what they're you know their jokes rather than making your own how is it sketching uh, Boris Johnson every day
11: well, that's a very good observation about sketching. And when Andrew Rawnsley was the Guardian sketch writer um, in the early 90s, uh, he always used to refuse to report any MP who made a joke because he, he, he took the view that uh, sketch writers, we, 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 we do the jokes. <laughs> uh, and it's, but it, it actually was a shrewd observation because um, just reporting someone else's jokes doesn't really make copies sing particularly, unless they happen to be Tommy Cooper. Uh, actually, with Tommy Cooper, it didn't work either, because it, it all depends on where, you, you know, the, the context and the, the way it's performed. So, uh, Boris, when he when he does the occasional jokes and it, it doesn't really work in copy, what does make him work in copy as a as a cherno uh, is that he causes chaos. And any person who creates a bow wave um, is fun to report because that's really what journalism is about. We want to have change. And compared to what went before uh, with Theresa May, never has failure been so uninteresting as it was under Theresa May. Uh, But uh, Boris Johnson can fail quite often, as you've just been hearing. Uh, He can sometimes succeed, but it is always somehow unusual and interesting. And so that's really what makes him OK for sketching uh, and certainly a great improvement on his predecessor.
1: Uh, Jeremy Hunt's been out tweeting this morning uh, about the fact there was a year ago today that Boris Johnson beat him in the leadership contest. He was proud of his campaign, but congratulations to Boris Johnson one year on would it have yeah, been it better be. for you well, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> if Jeremy I'm hunted just... one and on a purely ske- you know for the sketch writers guild
11: Hunt would have been a nightmare. He would have been continuity mayor. I don't mean that in terms of policy, but in terms of I mean I, I've uh, a lot of time for Jeremy Hunt. I think he's personally uh, uh, a decent soul, but uh, he is he does not create excitement. And um, uh, with uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, you could not say that he was dull either. Uh, I mean, I couldn't disagree more with Jeremy Corbyn in terms of uh, a lot of what he stood for. But he was he was interesting to watch politically because people developed very sharp reactions against him and that's certainly true with boris johnson you just have to look at um the times readers views of boris johnson they can be quite lively but, you know they don't he, he he's not blamange not in one sense anyway
1: <laughs> and what about what about keir starmer how is he as from, from a sketch writer's perspective
11: well early days uh matt um for me he's a, he's a bit constipated, uh, but I think understandably so he 's trying to work out perhaps what he 's going to do, but he's not uh, he's not a natural stroke player in terms of um, of public politics of the performance art of politics. I mean just think of the general election campaign uh the 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 big image really from the general election campaign was was Johnson bursting through that uh, wall of um polystyrene bricks with his JCB digger. And suddenly that just somehow encapsulated everything that uh, it wasn't just to do with getting through Brexit. It's it's, it's Boris Johnson's approach to life, just causing (laughs) chaos and knocking everything down and destroying things. And that's why it was I just thought it was a terribly funny moment perhaps unintentionally funny, in some ways, of Boris causing mayhem.
1: Yeah, it felt like one of those things which sat, sort of sounded better in the meeting rather than reality. But oh, I was watching it back yesterday when, I was, when we were putting together the montage at the, at the top of the hour, and it was difficult because it's just the sound of Polestarian falling over, so it doesn't really work very well on the radio. But it is an extraordinary moment.
11: <laughs> but for sketch writers, for instance, Theresa May, the best moment for us, for Theresa May, was that disastrous speech she made at Manchester. With the cough. the... With a cough and when the set started falling to pieces and the bloke presented it with a P45. And it was bliss. You didn't really have to sketch it in terms of being <laughs> cartooning. You just had to do a straightforward bit of reporting. Just to write down
1: what <laughs> happened. And that was all that you, uh, that was all that you needed. Well, uh, thank you for Qu- Quentin Letts there talking us through uh, sketching Boris Johnson and Theresa May and Jeremy Hunt and Keir Starmer. That's all we've got time for on this episode. To listen to the whole Times Radio show, just go to the Times Radio app and click listen again. To make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple, ACast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times radio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially
9: impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.